the College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. I'm Dan Wolken with Paul Meyerberg. Took a couple weeks off. I had some uh, time I needed to take, uh, but not the best time of year to be leaving because uh, just a lot of stuff has happened since we talked about the coaches poll. Uh, I think we've got more topics today, Paul, than we can handle, including the fact that it's week zero. And I know it's week zero because I saw some teams, including Nebraska and Northwestern, getting on airplanes to go over to Ireland to play a game this Saturday. So really exciting. It's finally here. I don't love the concept of week zero because I feel like college football should be having this big grand entrance into our lives. Instead, we sort of get this, you know, kind of milk toast uh, slate of games that is just not great. Uh, but it's a nice little uh, maybe uh, amuse-boucher, as, as you would say in French cuisine. Yeah. Um... I'm in favor of week zero if we're going to do big games. Like the NFL does big games on their Thursday night. Like they get things started. It's like the Pats play the, you know, whoever else is good in the NFL. This is not that slate. Um, milk toast is probably a nice way to put it. This is just a bad slate of games. So it's like getting, you know, like a wilted salad as your starter. It's not that great. But still, if you're hungry, I mean, here you go. Eat up. So we'll talk about these slate of games. Um, do you want to tell everyone where you went, Dan? I mean, usually it's not like you're going to Vero Beach for your spring vacation. You go to some exotic locales. Tell the world where you went. Oh, I spent a little time in the uh, Balkan Peninsula. Uh, it was an interesting uh, place to be. Um, some countries, uh, a couple countries that uh, never expected to go to, but um, good cultural experience. Really and what's the what's the tenor of the world over there, Dan? Like this talk, let's talk geopolitics. What are people talking about in the Balkans? How are they responding to the um, to the? Um... They're, they're, well, they're mainly talking about each other because they can't really agree on you know who's got this territory or that territory or cultural landmarks and those kinds of things. A lot a lot of disputes about that, and you sort of hear different sides of of that story. And, you know, that's a great uh, journalism lesson as well, because, you know, often we get in situations and, you know, we talk to one person who's been involved in, in something and then another person who's on the opposite side. And they have totally different perspectives on what happened and sort of it's your job to, to judge kind of where the truth lies as a media person based on, on the facts and the evidence. Uh, but I, I really can't do that when it comes to things like, you know, North Macedonia versus Greece's Macedonia. I'm not qualified to do that. Well, um, I didn't do anything. Thank you for asking. I was just around these last couple of weeks doing doing really nothing. I'm just getting ready for football season. Well, speaking of geopolitics, I mean, what do we do to the poor Irish to, to give them Nebraska Northwestern? Um, we're not sending our best over there. We, we do this. All the time. Like, we send the Jags to the UK. It's like we're sending, you know, like a poison pill. Like, why would you send the Jags? Like, you want to spread your market as the NFL? You want to let 
the, the Brits look at the Jags. I never understood that. I think that's a terrible idea. And this is the same way. I guess there's Chicago, Northwestern, Irish background in Chicago, Irish population, Irish American population. So Northwestern, maybe. I don't really get Nebraska. It's just a football game. And even then, it's like an amateur semi-pro football game involving two really mediocre to bad teams. So uh, I, we apologize in advance. This isn't, like you said, our best. Um, but we hope the Irish enjoy it at the very least. It's three hours or three and a half hours of, of American football for their taste. How do you feel in general about sending college football games overseas? Because I think on one hand, it's it's an awesome experience. It's 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 really cool for fans. You know, anyone I think who's not been to Ireland before, uh, who's a fan of Nebraska or Northwestern, is going to go over there and have an amazing time because like Dublin is really one of the most fun cities in the world. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of good stuff to see. There's a lot of good stuff to drink. Uh, and we know Nebraska fans are good at drinking. They're going to drink a lot of beer. They're going to drink a lot of whiskey. It's going to be awesome. Um, you know, this used to be a thing that more programs did. We used to play games in Japan, you know, back in the eighties. Uh, I think maybe nineties there were, there were games played in Japan, which seems kind of weird. We've done the Ireland thing before. I know Notre Dame's played over there, which obviously there's a natural connection. I think I remember there was a UCF Penn state game. Over there, I know Georgia Tech's been over there a time or two. Um, so, I don't know. At the same time, you know, college football is a quintessentially American product. And it's not like exporting it is going to grow interest in college football overseas necessarily. Uh, and, you know, you come back and it's it's a hard trip. It's a hard trip for the players uh, to, to go over there and then get readjusted and try to, to try to play the next week. So, I don't know. I'm conflicted on it. I, I guess overall, I think it's good, but I don't know if you have any strong feelings about it. Yeah, I think it is good. And like you said, like we don't have a lot as Americans to export to the world that is a purely American invention or purely Americana. Um, so college football is one of those things that we can show the world that, hey, we made this. Um, it's a disaster. It's ugly. The football's terrible. Like they can't hit five yard out routes, but still, this is ours. Um, so I'm all in favor of that. And the experience itself, like these college athletes, they don't get that study abroad experience. I'm not equating like a semester in Paris to a game in Ireland, but it is like a new and fresh thing. So I love it. I think it's great. I think it's cool that at like, I, let me do the math here. 1230 Eastern. So that must be 530 Dublin. Um, there's going to be, you know, Northwestern and Nebraska playing in front of like maybe 35 to 40,000 superbly confused Irishmen and women who have no idea what's going on. I think that's a cool experiment. So I'm all for it. I think it's great. But like you said, the drawback is um, you come back from Ireland, let's say you're Nebraska, you get back on Sunday, you're jet lagged till Monday or Tuesday, then you play, you play North Dakota. But still, you play a game basically five days later after getting your clock right. So that's a challenge for sure for, for that team in specific. Have you been to Ireland before? Never been to Ireland. And I've never even been to Scotland, believe it or not. So I want to, I definitely need to hit those two places up. Yeah, you got to go to Ireland. I recommend Ireland everybody because it's it's really fun. It's really cool. Another cool thing about Ireland, you actually go through customs and passport control uh, when you're coming back to the United States. You actually do it in the Dublin airport. And so you don't have to do it when you land in America. You just walk right off the plane like you're traveling domestic. It's great, actually. Love it. Love it. That's great. All right. So... This is a big game for Nebraska. It's a huge game for Scott Frost. I mean, Northwestern, you know, they're coming off a bad year. I mean, 
historically that means this is going to be a good year. That's kind of the way it's been for uh, those guys over the last, I don't know, six, seven years. It's like a lot of extremes in Pat Fitzgerald's program. But I guess I'm not really all that interested in Northwestern because you, you're going to get what you're going to get. And and they're hard to predict. Um, but Nebraska, like this is a huge turning point year. It's time for Scott Frost to win some games. It has been the weirdest coaching tenure I think I've ever seen in terms of expectations versus performance versus the ridiculous ways they've invented to lose, I don't know, 10 games, 12 games over the last four years? Yeah, easy. Hey, this reminds me, didn't Frost say that he'd, he would play a game in Uzbekistan? Or did, was that quote invented? Do you remember that, like, late in the COVID that? year? I no. got to Google that. But, yeah, I mean, you've nailed it exactly. Northwestern is a is always a hard team to pick. No one ever wants to give them the benefit of the doubt, rightfully so, because they're always kind of playing from behind from, like, a talent perspective. Um, I personally think, and I know this bucks the trend, I don't think this team's that good. Like, you look at their roster, you're not seeing difference-making yeah. talent uh, on either side of the ball. They've got a quarterback quandary. I, I just I just don't see it. Do I think they can get to 6-6 six and six or something? Maybe, but this is not like that 3-9 to nine, Three and nine to nine and three team. So, to me, it's a game Nebraska should win by fourteen to twenty-one points. You know, and I think if they don't do that, and it's another twenty to seventeen, or it's a fourth quarter collapse, that's going to tell you all you need to know about this team, and really all you need to know about the rest of Scott Frost's tenure. If they lose this game, it's over. Uh, it's not officially over, but it's over. It's done. It's dead in the water, one hundred percent. So, if you actually believe this team can be good, I would expect them to win 35-17, because. They look better, but again, we don't know what to expect from this team. What would be the reason why they could finally put it together this year other than just time? That's it, Dan. I mean, it's just time. Like, what do you, what do you believe in? If you, if, if you followed this program, you bought into the hype, it's been four full seasons now. What have you seen in four full years that you're like, Okay, so we saw this progress even in three and nine. Is it because they lost those games or because the defense was a little bit better? Um, I look at this year's team. Um, you basically had a swap at QB, a four-year starter, Adrian Martinez, for a guy in Casey Thompson who's a little bit experienced, uh, has a better arm, whatever. Um, defensively, they have some losses, especially up front. Um, I don't see any reason why – you should like automatically believe that this year is going to be different, except for the fact that they've recruited well. Um, there were a lot of unlucky breaks and, you know, the world tends to even out, you know? So the, the question really is not whether they can win seven games, because I think that's really the baseline, um, but whether yeah. they can win nine, because nine might be what it takes to bring Frost back. I don't know what Trev Alberts, their AD is thinking, but um, if they're seven and five, that, you, you kind of extended and, and lost all of your goodwill that you can use to save Scott Frost's job last summer or last winter rather. So I don't know if he has that goodwill again to do it if they go six and six or seven and five. As far as other week zero games, I, I, I cannot lie to our listeners. It, it sucks. Um, Austin, what's game, what's just, game number two? What's the second best game of this slate then, to you? Wyoming, Illinois. Yeah. Agreed. And that's not great. Wyoming could be okay, Mountain West style. It could be an eight-win team, but we don't believe in Illinois as a, as a Big Ten contender. I mean, it's always good to see, you know, Brett Bielema. I, we'll be looking for 
the year one to year two progress there. But, you know, I, I don't know that that's going to tell us a whole lot. You know, Florida State playing Duquesne is a game that, that you will at least monitor for the nuclear disaster potential um, because there's been some of those at Florida State. I don't expect that, certainly. I actually expect Florida State to be to be way better this year. I hope they're way better this year. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't like. I don't think they're going to win the division, obviously, uh, but I think they can get to eight wins, and it starts with Duquesne. One time, and I don't remember the game, I was at a game. It was a fourth quarter of a blowout, and after five minutes, I was walking down the steps towards the field, as we do with like four minutes, 52 seconds left, and Duquesne was playing somebody, and they were playing them really tight, and I'm standing in line waiting to get through the gate, and I see these two guys like right next to me like looking at their phone, and the guy shows the other guy the phone, like looking at the score, and the dude goes, Duquesne? Um, so I always think of Duquesne with Duquesne. Duquesne does not have a chance against Florida State. Florida State should win by 50, um, would be my guess. Though, the Duquesne Flames? Do you have any idea? I should know this because I certainly have watched them play college basketball before. I, I don't know. I don't know their mascot. I have no idea. Um. Duquesne Max Scott is a lion. Uh, they are the, the they're the they're the Dukes. They're the Dukes. Duquesne, Duquesne Dukes. Dukes. Cool. I'm, I think that's great. Um, anyway, I've I've hijacked this to talk about mascots. I think Florida State, like you said, is going to roll over Duquesne, um, and that's it. I mean, that's pretty much the games. I mean, unless you want to talk about uh, you want to talk about your alma mater going out to the to the little island for a Hawaii game at ten thirty. I think they're going to lose that game, Dan. Yeah, I saw that. I saw they uh, have headed out uh, to um, to Oahu. Uh, lovely uh, trip. I don't know, man. I mean, Hawaii's Hawaii's in bad shape too. I mean, the the Todd Graham thing is is truly one of the most baffling hiring decisions. Who would hire Todd Graham at this point? Like, why would you do it? His son transferred. He's that much of an a-hole. <laughs> His son left the team. The, the uh, Warriors hired Timmy Chang. We all remember Timmy Chang. You remember Timmy Chang? You ever watch Timmy Chang? 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning, Eastern time, slinging around. No, I, I, hope, I hope the vibes are better. I hope the vibes are better. But I fear, I fear that Todd Graham has left them in, you know uh, – a hole that's going to take years to dig out of years. Yeah. Yeah. They're in really bad shape. Um, that's just a game. If you're a degenerate and you miss football that much, you can watch that late night on CBS sports network. That's on TV. That's on regular TV, 1030 Eastern time. Um, I would actually think that the next best game in all seriousness is probably, probably Charlotte at a Florida Atlantic. And that's, that tells you all you need to know. Conference USA tilt, right? Charlotte FAU. Will Healy versus Willie Taggart. Yeah. So that's it, guys. I mean, that's that's that's, that's your schedule. Yeah, I mean, if you, you got Nebraska, this is what I would do. Nebraska at 1230. Okay, that's on Fox. That's going to get you to 4 o'clock. You got Wyoming, Illinois on BTN. That'll get you to – that'll just get you. That'll just get you to dinner. And then you can go go have a night. Enjoy your final Saturday before you before you get glued to the TV screen. By the way, just to circle back to Vanderbilt for a little while, I, I guess I would have to pick Vanderbilt to win since at SEC Media Day, Clark Lee said that they were going to be the best program in college football. 
I mean, you can't be the best program in college football at some point if you lose to Hawaii. Did he give? Did he say when? He didn't give a date. That that was the catch. There was no concrete date attached to it. Because I wish I knew when, so I would know to be ready. Um, I assume it's not this season. I you could have a hundred years. You could. You could. You could uh, go find the Holy Grail. Give yourself immortality, coach. And Vanderbilt will never be the best program in the country until the world ends and you legitimately keep the doors open to the Vanderbilt football complex till the last possible second. And then when you're the last program standing on the planet, you will be the best football program in the country. But other than that, there's nothing he can do. Um, there's no chance of that happening. I love the optimism. It's like me saying, Dan, um, I'm going to become uh, the best actor in the world and I'm going to win every single Academy Award for acting, just you watch. And you're like, I guess that's possible, but there's no, there's nothing that I've shown that makes you think that I'm gonna become the best actor in the world, or, or even better, I'm gonna become president. Just you wait. Will Clark Lee be proven right before the asteroid wipes everything out? You know, I probably looking at, you know, maybe a million years or two million years, something like that. So, so they got time. We got time. We got plenty. I got bad news though, Dan. We're going to be gone. Yeah, probably yeah. We probably have yeah. about maybe 2,500, 3,000 years before this place is no longer habitable. So get cracking. Either like start producing enormous, just an enormous family tree that will maintain your family tradition, or go find the elixir of life, Ponce de Leon style, and live forever. But either way, the clock is ticking big time. On Clark Lee, I, I just don't have a lot of, of hope of that, and I even don't have a lot of hope they're going to win at Hawaii. Though you convinced me, they they really should. I think I, I think certainly from an SEC standpoint, uh, you, you don't want your first non-conference game of the year to be a loss to Hawaii. Uh, it's a lot of pressure on the shoulders of the Commodores. I, I think they'll rise to the occasion. All right, let, let's stop talking about Week Zero and talk about some more interesting topics. We're a little uh, late on this, but I do think it's worth addressing. The Big Ten has signed a media rights deal. They are off ESPN. What they are getting is billion dollars annually, probably something like that. Schools are going to make about seventy million in media rights each. When it all gets cranking, the Big Ten is going to have. The noon window on Fox, they're going to have the 3.30 window on CBS, taking that over for the SEC, and they're going to have a primetime window on NBC. The three biggest games of the day in the Big Ten are now going to be on three over-the-air networks. They will also be able to renegotiate this deal before the SEC's contract with ESPN is up. Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten, has gone from the butt of jokes from a guy who was like driving through protesters on his way to the office in Chicago during the whole COVID thing in 2020, a guy who frankly within his own league was being pilloried off the record by numerous administrators. He looked like he was on his way to crash out of that job, go back to the NFL. Instead, he is now the bee's knees. He is now the guy who was signed 
the best contract in the history of college football. He is the guy who has positioned the Big Ten to wallop the SEC financially. Now, we know the SEC, from a competitive standpoint, is going to be very hard to knock off. But Kevin Warren has put the Big Ten in a position by adding USC-UCLA, leaving the door open for more expansion, and now signing this deal all in the past couple months has totally transformed his reputation and his legacy in a way that I can't think of any other college sports official has ever done. Yeah, and in such a short amount of time. I, like, Kevin Warren's got to be like, you know, how do you like me now kind of thing, right? Because think about how his tenure had gone to this point, you know, with COVID. And... I'm going to start calling him Toby Keith. I'm going to start calling the guy Toby Keith. Next time I see Kevin Warren, I'm going to call him Toby Keith. How do you like me now? How do you like me now? Um, from a competitive perspective, Dan, like the SEC has such a built-in advantage. Like you're not just going to – you're not going to catch up with with athletes. You don't have them in your backyard, but how you catch up with, as we know all too well, is with money. And they're not just closing the gap. They're going to set a new standard right here for the Big Ten. So I just find that to be a fascinating development. We've talked for – I think we've talked for years about how the Big Ten and SEC were distancing themselves from the competition. Uh, we kind of projected forward what things could look like. I remember writing um, early in the spring uh, from Navigate just the uh, the idea of what things might look like in 27-28, and I think they undershot it because this is just a mammoth, mammoth deal. And, and I think the number that really puts it into perspective that you mentioned at the start, a billion dollars a year. Um, and I just think that's earth-shattering money um, for the Big Ten and for college football. Yeah, at the end of the day, I, I don't think fans should really care about how much money their school is getting from a conference or from television. You know, I, I just – look, these schools have somehow, like, convinced people that there's, like, some big scoreboard somewhere that, you know, that, that counts the money and, you know, sort of gives you this inherent uh, advantage over schools that make less money. At the end of the day – it's still the blocking and tackling. It's still the basics. That's what's going to determine the the amount of success. Uh, you're still going to hire crappy coaches, and you're going to just end up paying them more in buyout money. Like that's the real sort of upshot to all this. Now, look, I do think that if we ever get to a point where colleges are paying players, and I think we're, we are going to get to that point uh, in the next five years, then yeah, then, then it starts to really impact your, your bottom line. Like, I saw this tweet last night about Florida redid their locker room again. I, you know, oh, no, I guess it's not a redo. It's they, they've opened this new facility at Florida, this new uh, tra football training facility. And each locker cost $15,000, right? Each locker for each player, $15,000 each. An absurd, obscene number, a ridiculous amount of money. There is no locker in the world that will be worth fifteen thousand dollars in in value to the program. Uh, so not, only only if you can drive it home. Um, right. That's the only way that fifty thousand, uh, or if it, or if it comes with maybe fourteen thousand uh, and a hundred dollars worth of uncut diamonds. That's the only right. way that you have that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to lead to increased spending, but we don't see increased spending in the way that really impacts the fan on a daily basis. 
Um, you know, Greg Sankey getting an extra couple million bucks. Uh, Sankey's not a best example, obviously. Um, but, you know, your coach getting another year and a couple million bucks added on his contract doesn't really change your day-to-day life. But that's how we're seeing the spending so far. Um, right. You know, so. But my point is that this is how schools have operated, is, is you get these this kind of money from television uh, the next television contract and the dis- dis- the disbursement goes up, that's what you spend it on, right? You spend it on stuff like $15,000 lockers. When we get to the point where players are going to share revenue, that's not going to happen so much. It's going to, the, the money that goes to the players will come out of other parts of, of the budget. And, you know, that, that sort of area, like, you know, $15,000 lockers is the prime area where you can. We have all been in um, NBA locker rooms, NFL locker rooms, training facilities. Most people probably don't realize this, but like a middle of the road power five football facility blows the best NFL facility out of the water in terms of, you know, all that amenities and, and all the crap that goes into it. And the reason is because the NFL teams, they, they have what they need. They have all the technology and they have the recovery equipment and, you know, all the stuff that's going to like truly impact performance. What they don't have is all the stuff that people feel like impacts recruiting because they don't need to recruit because they're paying players to be there. Right. So when you get to that model in college and we're going to get to that model, then the financial advantage that the Big Ten has will lead to on the field results because you're going to be able to negotiate on a different level with players from conferences that don't make as much money. So um, I think if you're the Big Ten and you've just signed this deal, you should be open to paying players because you're in the best position to do it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. um, We're going to look back. What has driven, Dan, the modern (laughs) recruiting era, which I say is 2000, has been this arms race. We talked about it for years. Like we would always talk about, like we were obsessed with in terms of how we cover the sport, even into the early to mid 2010s, Alabama waterfall, uh, Miami needs an indoor or Georgia needs an indoor. Uh, Florida needs to redo their facilities. What is this? Like, what are you going to do to entice a recruit to sign with your school? And it's going to look so dumb. It already does look dumb um, because facilities have immediately become number two or number three on a list of priorities for for, uh, the modern recruit, the 2020s recruit. So that's a really fascinating development. I'd love to see, or not love to see, but I would expect to see uh, what you just mentioned. And that is when we get to a point where there's like a set salary for a player that's coming from the school or from the conference, the days of the big time uh, lobby, the days of the big time waterfall, days of the big time locker, which converts into a race car bed, those are done. Um, And probably for the better of the sport, not just probably, but if, if that's the trade-off, then it's obviously for the betterment of the sport. Dan, um, to, to, I want, I want to talk about the scheduling part of it real quick, yeah. um, because I think this is so fascinating. You, you nailed it about Warren and the big Ten's vision for dominating Saturdays. And what they've done is every single Saturday, just to reiterate the point that you made, which is really good. Every single Saturday on a major network, not on, they will have games on Peacock and, and, and elsewhere or FS1. Big but Ten on Network. The, yeah. On the three of the four major networks, you're going to have games in all three of the major time slots. That's such a coup. That's amazing. Yeah. No one has ever done that before. So if you can picture very easily, I mean, you've got uh, 
Wisconsin, Iowa at noon. Okay, you've got your 3.30 game. Now, at 7 o'clock, you got Ohio State, USC, you know, or at 7.30 on NBC. Um, I love it. I think it's so good for the Big Ten. The one thing that I want to bring up with you, and I don't – I think that Oswald acted alone. I don't believe in QAnon or any of that stuff. But what is the – is there merit to the idea that the Big Ten not being on ESPN is a real negative? not just for broadcast purposes, but just for overall coverage purposes. Is there anything to that idea in your mind that, that ESPN will essentially not wash their hands in the Big Ten, but you'll see them become obviously the second or third conference or the third because they have the ACC that, that the, the network is going to focus on? Yeah, I think what will happen is people will be watching all of those analysts like a hawk. You know, every word they say that comes out of their mouth is going to be analyzed by Big Ten fans. You know what I mean? Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, some of the biggest ESPN personalities are Big Ten guys. You know, Kirk Herbstreet, Ohio State. We all, so we all know Kirk Herbstreet is not just a Big Ten guy. He is, you know, he, he's, he's everywhere. He knows every part of the country, and I, he's very good at what he does. Um, and I think he's extremely fair. Like, I, you never watch Kirk Herbstreet call an Ohio State game and think he's biased to Ohio State. I don't think. Um, but certainly in terms of his, you know, his chops and sort of where his biggest fan base is, so to speak, it's in the Big Ten. Desmond Howard, Michigan guy, right? There's a few others at, at ESPN who are very closely connected with the Big Ten. Will they stay there at ESPN? Um, will they, you know, are they going to be the guys who are, you know, sitting on one side of the table and Paul Feinbaum's on the other side of the table? Like, how is that going to work? I, I don't think ESPN, I don't think there's going to be some directive from, you know, Jimmy Pitaro at ESPN to say, you know, trash the Big Ten at every opportunity and pump up the SEC. Is there going to be some, you know, some maybe implicit bias? We all know about implicit bias. We've all taken those 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 training courses. Um, you know, you sort it's a bias sort of without thinking about it. Is that is that going to be in the mix? Maybe. I think it's going to be talked about by fans more than it's actually going to be a thing. Yeah, the, the point of uh, those two guys on the game day desk. Game day is the opinion. You know, it's the, it's the Fox Five for ESPN's college football coverage. You know what I mean? I think it really drives a lot of how people perceive the network and how they perceive how the network covers things. So Herb Street and Des Howard on that on that set almost assures that the Big Ten's going to have a major focal point. I don't buy into it, um, and I, I don't buy into it until the, for the reasons you said. I mean, just because they don't have programming, like three-hour block programming in the Big Ten, it still behooves ESPN to make them a, a centerpiece of their football coverage. They're, they're the co-number one conference in the country. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be some tinfoil hat and conspiracies and some cynicism, you know, about how they cover the league going forward. Uh, it's just natural. And how they and how they cover it. Like, how yeah. is CBS going to cover the Big Ten? How is Fox? Well, we know how Fox is. How is NBC? You know, what kind of resources are they going to develop or, or put towards it during the week? What are we going to see? So, yeah, I'm really interested in that. Um, CBS never went like, hey, we need to hire devoted SEC reporters, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, it's it's, it's just a, such an interesting uh, layout by the Big Ten in terms of how they're going to be on TV. It's just they did such a nice job. Speaking of college football on TV, how do we feel about Urban Meyer 
returning to the Fox set this season? I think he's really good at it. You know what I mean? He's not like the most charismatic dude on TV, uh, but I think he's really good at it. And he's been really good at it. You remember when he did like, maybe it was a year off, he did some ESPN stuff in that in that window of time. Didn't he like, you know, he was on the sidelines for a championship game. I kind of remember that. Um, uh, I thought he's, I think he's really good on TV. The question is, Dan, like, has he lost credibility to you? Has he lost credibility to viewers? I don't know. He has to me a little bit. I think that when he starts talking about, you know, chemistry and leadership and personal responsibility, which are themes that Urban Meyer has used to his advantage and beaten everybody else over the head with throughout his career. When he starts getting onto that kind of stuff, I think a lot of people will just roll their eyes. I think he's good. I don't think he's amazing. He's fine. Um, I'm not sure the juice is worth the squeeze, really. You know, maybe it's it's just there's not anybody else. I mean, I don't really watch the Fox pregame shows or halftime shows, to be honest with you. I mean, I'll, I'll tune in a little bit, but uh, it's not appointment viewing for me. Apparently, a lot of people did not like Bob Stoops in that role. Um, I didn't watch enough to form an opinion. Chris Peterson, you want to talk about no charisma? He, he you know, just doesn't have it. Uh, probably not the best fit. So, so maybe it's just hard to find guys who are good on TV. To, to do that. So, you know, so they keep going back to urban. I, I just don't think it really gets them any viewers. And so I don't, I don't really understand it. Yeah. There's going to be a moment where he talks about his leadership approach. You'll find it on Twitter. You'll see it. I guarantee it. 100%. All right. Let's hit some other uh, hot button topics out there. I have not watched the Manti Teo documentary yet. Have you watched it? Dan, there is no way in hell. There is no. It would be like the Clockwork Orange for me to watch that documentary. There is no way. There is no way I want to relive that period of my life. That was about thirty-five or forty days. You think of our lives in the fall of two thousand twelve, where I was watching like I was like watching talk shows during the day and transcribing quotes from experts in case we wanted to have something in a Manti Teo story. Um, 10 years is not long enough. I need a 100-year moratorium. That needs to go into a time capsule uh, until after I'm dead. I'm not watching it, in other words. If you're watching it, then you're a glutton. You're a masochist. I'll watch it at some point. Uh, I, I I remember covering the story to a certain extent. I went back this week because actually somebody asked me what we did back then on, on Manti Teo. And I, I went back and read a few of the pieces. I, I don't think we ever sort of were – overly like mean you know i don't think we were like super judgmental on him or anything like that i, I so I, I felt good about that you know because basically from what i've heard this documentary you know kind of shows him in in a very sympathetic light it, which is deserved i mean he got he, he um he got taken advantage of and humiliated in in a way that that he didn't deserve and a lot of people did pile on and I guess I'm just glad that we didn't, from from everything I went back and read, we didn't pile on. We covered the story. Um, so I'm happy about that. But um, 
it is one of the most surreal things we've ever encountered in this sport. It's, uh, I, I'm assuming everyone remembers this story, but listening to this, you definitely remember Manti Teo and Lenny, Lenny Kekua. Um, I, I, I always felt that, and I don't know if this is a detour you want to take on the podcast. I even felt at the time and certainly feel now, and maybe the doc would, would reinforce those, reinforce those ideas. Um, you felt sympathy for him in the moment because who in the world would go along? Like what, what, why, why would he pretend or go along with a fake and like lie to the world? I think he was truly deluded um, uh, by this person. So I always felt a high degree of sympathy for him. And, I, and it's 100% clouded the way that we look at him as a player in college. And he was an outstanding, wonderful player, one of the top defenders in Notre Dame football history. Uh, and I think it's, I, I got to admit, I haven't, I don't follow the NFL. I don't know how his career has gone from like a success perspective, but it's, it's 100% dogged him for 10 years. And that's unfortunate, right? Because he was really a sublime college football player and really a legendary one. I mean, he's a college football hall of famer, no doubt. Yeah. Um, that was an amazing season because Notre Dame, you know, if you go back and really like analyze that team, it was not a great team. They had they had a couple really awesome defensive players, and he he was one of them. He was the best one. They had some other guys who were really really good. Had went on to have very good NFL careers. Um, they scraped by a lot of games, but they did it every single week. And then you look up, and they're playing for a national championship, and not just playing for a national championship against Alabama, but were you know there were people who thought they could win the game. You know, up until, up until kickoff. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, I even think I've talked about this on the podcast before. The game was over at media day. Um, Notre Dame came first into the, I guess, old Joe Robbie at that point. Um, no, no, no. It was the same stadium as now. It just didn't have the roof. Oh, okay. What What was it called back then? It was that, that Hard Rock is the same facility? It's the same facility. I Okay. I'm going to look up what the name was. Yeah, I don't have a clue. I didn't have, a, I had no clue, but um, we knew from the moment they like walked onto the field for media day that this was going to be a bloodbath. Um, it was like NFL versus college team with Alabama Notre Dame, which makes it a wonderful achievement for Manti Teo. It, you know, he was like, he carried that team all season. He was fantastic. For the record, it was called Sun Life Stadium at that point in time. Sun Life. Gotcha. It's the same building. They just put a roof over it. It's, it looks a lot better now. Okay. Makes sense. But definitely uh, the least competitive national championship game I've ever covered. Uh, what about LSU-Clemson, right? Clemson was in it for a little while. Clemson was like, for a quarter, Clemson looked like they, they could, they had something for them. Yeah, yeah. That was a bloodbath. That was, was 42-14. This was like Eddie Lacy just like stomping on people. Hmm. Great college running back, Eddie Lacy. We don't talk about him enough. We should do a special episode where we just say names of players. And then in response, one of us will go, oh, man, he was great. And then I'll say, remember remember, uh, Bradley Van Pelt? (laughs) I remember. I I covered Bradley Van Pelt. I'm that old. I covered Bradley Van Pelt. So good. So good. Uh yeah, this this is forget a special episode. We can just do a podcast, just famous names 
just for an hour. Anyway, it's probably not the best idea. I'm not that smart about making money-making ideas. Our friend uh, Jeremy Pruitt, the disgraced former Tennessee coach, is now a poker player. Is that what this? <laughs> uh, no, I had no idea. I had no idea. Jerry Pruitt, professional poker player? Well, I don't know that he's a professional poker player, but um, he was spotted playing a poker tournament. You know, I don't know if it, it might might have been one of those World Series of Poker satellite events or something. I, I don't know exactly what, what it was, but it was a tournament where it was uh, – like a thousand dollar, eleven hundred dollar buy-in. There were um, a whole bunch of players, and somebody just spotted Pruitt and put it on social media, and it kind of took off. He ended up finishing twenty third place out of four hundred and fifteen people. Took home twenty nine hundred in prize money. It's an eighteen hundred dollar profit. Um, not to um, you know make fun of the man, but uh, he, he lost out on you know, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars uh, from Tennessee because he broke NCAA rules and he almost certainly is not going to get that money. So um, he's headed in the right direction. He turned 1,100 into 2,900. That's pretty good. Um, like, I like to think of this happening on a riverboat, like somewhere in the south somewhere. Like he's just gotten on one of those big paddle, one of those things that the back and the, and the wheels spin. Um, typically, like, I've become a professional poker player comes like three or four years down the line from the big fall. Like there are stages, like you lose your career, you like, you know, wallow in it for a year or two. And then you, you know, do local TV commercials and you're doing Raycom as a sideline analyst. And then you become a pro player, but he has skipped to the end of the line um, and made that happen very fast. If he needs to, like, if he's relying on, on these 1800 bucks to make ends meet, I, I don't think that's happening, Dan. I, I think he's pocketed enough money, even if he left, like, how many millions on the table. I think he's okay, financially. I think he's okay, money. too. Uh, our friend Blake Topmeyer from uh, Gannett Network in Tennessee uh, reported that uh, he busted out with Ace King uh, against Pocket Tens, and he didn't get any help on the flop, 995. Uh, the turn was a three, and the river was a four. So, you know, kind of one of those 50-50 all-in situations, and uh, he didn't get lucky. Total gibberish. Everything you just said. You don't know poker? You don't know how to play no, poker? No clue. Not a clue in the world. That was like someone, like, writing out something in, in like, Cyrillic. I have no idea what that means. I can't even interpret it at all. Um, you didn't watch, like, World Series of Poker back in the day, Chris Moneymaker and all no, that? No, uh-uh. Uh, no, I was watching probably something on the Oak Show. Like I was watching logging or something or World's Strongest Man when that was on. Um, I'm surprised that he's good at poker. He doesn't know what asparagus is. I've said this before. If you don't know what asparagus is, your high level brain function is probably not that great. So if he's like counting cards, but isn't familiar with one of the most uh, known and memorable of the green vegetables. I'm just really surprised by that. But maybe he's a savant in some way. Like he knows how to how to break NCAA rules and count cards, and that, those are the two things that he does best. Yeah, or maybe he just got lucky. I don't, I don't know. Um, all right, we've gone on for for quite a while here, so I got one more thing before we say goodbye today. I wrote a story on Monday about name, image, and likeness. There's a high school football powerhouse out in uh, California, St. John Bosco Prep School. Uh, they've got a bunch of dudes on their team who were like four or five star players. They've got three guys who are going to Louisville. Uh, 
next year. Uh, they are opening the season on Friday against Allen High School, which is another you know big uh, powerhouse in Texas. You know, you know it's good when teams are traveling from California to Texas to play a college or play a high school football game. Like you know that they're a, a big deal. But the story that I wrote, which I when I heard about it was interesting to me at least, is that there is a company out there that it's a sort of technology company uh, that measures, uh, uses all this video uh, technology to to look at how people are working out and uh, a lot of the different um, training methods to try to maximize their you know efficiency in, in the weight room. And so they've been using it at this school, like Texas uses it. This is like big time stuff. Uh, but they entered a name, image, and likeness deal with every player on the team. Uh, this is the first time that's happened as far as I know, but it certainly goes to show you that, you know, as much as we've talked about NIL at the college level, it is coming to high schools. And I think this is probably just the first of many. We're not talking about, you know, massive amounts of money. You know, it's not like these guys are each getting $100,000 or $10,000 or anything close to that. Um, but it's a nice little thing for them. It's a little money in their pocket. And I just think it's going to be more and more because, uh, Everything from pro trickles down to college, trickles down from college to high school. And this is the first one. And I think it's going to be something that, that these high school coaches are going to have to learn how to deal with, especially these sort of big mega programs. Yeah, Dan, does this feel like an untapped market, like in a major way, right? Like basketball teams, 12 guys on a basketball team, the star golfer in Kansas or a great pitcher down in Florida. This seems like an untapped market for these companies just to like, swoop in and, and and just engulf the marketplace how do, do you think that we're seeing that like this is the first step in, a, in the process of really seeing on a high school level what we've seen in college i think that there's probably a smaller market overall because these college or these high school teams generally are not playing you know in front of national television audiences i think it's harder in some ways for for people to identify with these guys and know who they are. But I think there's maybe some local, you know, sponsorship opportunities in smaller towns or, or, you know, cities where the high school football team is like the only thing there. And there's a lot of those kinds of places in, you know, in Texas, in Mississippi, in certain parts of Florida, like it's a massive deal. Everybody in the town goes on a Friday night. I think there's those kinds of opportunities. I think, it, you know, these powerhouse places where you, you've got, you know, 15 to 20 guys we're going to go play, you know, big time college football and others who are going to play small time college football. There's probably some opportunities there. I think one of the things that in talking to the, this high school uh, that I sort of didn't really think about, but is, is now very clearly a factor is agents and companies are, are trying to build these relationships with kids earlier and earlier, you know, because it's now allowed because in, in certain states, uh, 16 states plus DC right now. You can you can do NIL in high school. They want these guys early, and you know there's probably some some good and bad in that because there's always going to be people looking to take advantage. But you know, as as this coach from St. John Bosco, uh, Jason Negro, the way he explained it to me, and I think this is right, is you know high school players forever have gone to these college coaches to try to help them at least get started with the recruiting process, you know, to try to help them 
separate fact from fiction, you know, to try to tap into their expertise on reputations of coaches and programs and all that stuff. Well, it's going to now be the same in NIL. There are guys on that team who already have major NIL deals lined up already because they're, they're, they've already committed or, and they're going to sign soon in a couple months with, you know, Louisville or whoever. And they've got NIL deals already done. Um, so I think now, like, if that's going to be part of the recruiting process, if that's going to be what you encounter when you go to college, if you're serious about we're preparing kids to go play college football, well, then you have to prepare them for NIL too. And so a deal like this is kind of like an NIL starter kit. So I don't really see a downside to it. You, uh, well, yeah, definitely not. Um, it does reinforce the idea to me that we need to have better education. Like, I don't yeah. think you can rely, like you said, on word of mouth um, necessarily alone. You can if you're uh, Arch Manning or the equivalent star quarterback who's actually chasing those deals. You can kind of pick and choose. But for the average guy, I think the average college, incoming college student needs to really get a, a, a strong education about the marketplace, how to work it, how to use it to your advantage. Um, so my only fear would be that if this NIL process is starting at 15 or 16, let's say that's when you start playing varsity at a St. John Bosco, that you haven't even come close to being aware of, of what your capabilities are in that market. I'm not saying you're being used, but you're uneducated on the issue. So we, we really got to find a way. And I don't know. I don't know how, because it can't be an NCAA thing to talk to a 14 year old kid. We got to find a way to educate everyone, parents and kids about the market. And I don't know if, giving someone a contract at 15 or giving them access to contract at 15 is necessarily the way alone to do it. Well, it's certainly a topic that uh, is going to be with us as we continue on this journey for many, many years to come. And this is just one development that uh, I wanted to bring some attention to uh, because I do think it's, it's relevant to everything we've been talking about for the last year. All right, we got to go. That's uh, week zero. We're going to have another podcast next week as we get into the actual start of the season and some truly great matchups coming up early in September. Thank you very much for listening to the College Football Fix. We will drop new episodes every Tuesday this season. We'll be discussing the latest news. We'll be discussing the poll results and everything relevant from around college football. Subscribe to College Football Fix wherever you listen and find more of our content on usatoday.com and the USA Today Sports Plus app. For Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken. Have a great week, everybody.